Section 14 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 7 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 2. By Ida L. Pfeiffer. On the 10th of June I was present at the ceremony of admission into the Order of the Holy Sepulchre. Counts Zishi, Vratislav, and Salom Reiferscheidt were, at their own request, installed as Knights of the Sepulchre. This inauguration took place in the chapel. The chief priest, having taken his seat on a chair of state, the candidate for knighthood knelt before him, and took the customary oath to defend the Holy Church, to protect widows and orphans, etc., during this time the priests who stood round said prayers. Now one of the spurs of Godfrey de Bouillon was fastened on the heel of the knight, the sword of this hero was put into his hands, the sheath fastened to his side, and a cross with a heavy gold chain, that had also belonged to Godfrey de Bouillon, was put round his neck. Then the kneeling man received the stroke of knighthood on his head and shoulders, the priests embraced the newly elected knight, and the ceremony was over. A plentiful feast, given by the newly chosen knights, concluded the solemnity. Distant somewhat less than a mile from Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives. Emerging from St. Stephen's Gate, we pass the Turkish burial ground, and reach the spot where St. Stephen was stoned. Not far off we see the bed of the brook Cedron, which is, at this season of the year, completely dried up. A stone bridge leads across the brook, Adjoining it is a stone slab, where they show traces of the footsteps of the Saviour, as he was brought across this bridge from Gethsemane, and stumbled and fell. Crossing this bridge, we arrive at the grotto where Jesus sweat blood. This grotto still remains in its original form. A plain wooden altar has been erected there, a few years since, by a Bavarian prince, and the entrance is closed by an iron gate. Not far off is Gethsemane. Eight olive trees are here to be seen that have attained a great age. Nowhere else had I seen these trees with such massive trunks, though I had frequently passed through whole plantations of olives. Those who are learned in natural history assert that the olive tree cannot live to so great an age as to render it possible that these venerable trunks existed at the time when Jesus passed the last night in Gethsemane at prayer and supplication. As this tree, however, propagates itself, these trees may be sprouts from the ancient stems. The space around the roots has been strengthened with masonry, to afford a support to these patriarchal trunks, and the eight trees are surrounded by a wall three or four feet in height. No layman may enter this spot unaccompanied by a priest, on pain of excommunication. It is also forbidden to pluck a single leaf. The Turks also hold these trees in reverence, and would not injure one of them. Close by is the spot where the three disciples are said to have slept during the night of their master's agony. We were shown marks on two rocks, said to have been footsteps of these apostles. The footsteps of the third disciple we could not discover. A little to one side is the place where Judas betrayed his master. The little church containing the grave of the Virgin Mary stands near the Grotto of Anguish. We descended by a broad marble flight of fifty steps to the tomb, which is also used as an altar. About the middle of the staircase are two niches with altars. Within these are deposited the bones of the Virgin Mary's parents, and of St. Joseph. This chapel belongs to the Greeks. 
From the foot of the Mount of Olives to its summit is a walk of three-quarters of an hour. The whole mountain is desert and sterile. Nothing is found growing upon it but olives, and from the summit of this mountain our Saviour ascended into heaven. The spot was once marked by a church, which was afterwards replaced by a mosque. Even this building is now in ruins. Only twelve years ago a little chapel, of very humble appearance, was erected here. It now stands in the midst of old walls, but here again a footprint of our Lord is shown and reverenced. On this stone it is asserted that he stood before he was taken up into heaven. Not far off we are shown the place where the fig-tree grew that Jesus cursed, and the field where Judas hanged himself. One afternoon I visited many of these sites, in company with Count Berchtold. As we were climbing about the ruins near the mosque, a sturdy goat-herd, armed with a formidable bludgeon, came before us and demanded bakshish, a gift or an alms, in a very peremptory tone. Neither of us liked to take out our purse, for, fear the insolent beggar should snatch it from our hands, so we gave him nothing. Upon this he seized the count by the arm, and shouted out something in Arabic which we could not understand, though we could guess pretty accurately what he meant. The count disengaged his arm, and we proceeded almost to push and wrestle our way into the open field, which was luckily only a few paces off. By good fortune also several people appeared near us, upon seeing whom the fellow retired. This incident convinced us of the fact that Franks should not leave the city unattended. As the Mount of Olives is the highest point in the neighborhood of Jerusalem, it commands the best view of the town and its environs. The city is large, and lies spread over a considerable area. The number of inhabitants is estimated at twenty-five thousand. As in the remaining cities of Syria, the houses are here built of stone, and frequently adorned with round cupolas. Jerusalem is surrounded by a very lofty and well-preserved wall, the lower portion composed of such massive blocks of stone that one might imagine these huge fragments date from the period of the city's capture by Titus. Of the mosques, that of Omar, with its lead-covered roof, has the best appearance. It lies in an immense courtyard, which is neatly kept. This mosque is said to occupy the site of Solomon's temple. From the Mount of Olives we can plainly distinguish all the convents, and all the different quarters of Catholics, Armenians, Jews, Greeks, etc. The Mount of Offense, so called on account of Solomon's idolatry, rises at the side of the Mount of Olives, and is of no great elevation. Of the temple, and the buildings which Solomon caused to be erected for his wives, but a few fragments of walls remain. I had also been told that the Jordan and the Dead Sea might be seen from this mountain, but I could distinguish neither, probably on account of a mist which obscured the horizon. At the foot of the Mount of Olives lies the valley of Jehoshaphat. The length of this valley does not certainly exceed three miles, neither is it remarkable for its breadth. The brook Cedron intersects this valley, but it only contains water during the rainy season. At all other times all trace of it is lost. The town of Jerusalem is rather bustling, particularly the poor-looking bazaar and the Jews' quarter. The latter portion of the city is very densely populated, and exhales an odor offensive beyond description, and here the plague always seizes its first victims. The Greek convent is not only very handsome, but of great extent. Hither most of the pilgrims flock, at Easter time, to the number of five or six thousand. Then they are all herded together, and every place is crowded with occupants. Even the courtyard and terraces are full. 
This convent is the richest of all, because every pilgrim received here has to pay an exorbitant price for the very worst accommodation. It is said that the poorest seldom escape for less than four hundred piastres. Handsomest of all is the Armenian convent, standing in the midst of gardens. It has a most cheerful appearance. It is asserted to be built on the site where St. James was decapitated, an event commemorated by numerous pictures in the church. But most of the pictures, both here and in the remaining churches, are bad beyond conception. Like the Greeks, the Armenian priests enjoy the reputation of thoroughly understanding how to make a harvest out of their visitors, whom they are said generally to send away with empty pockets. As an amends, however, they offer them a great quantity of spiritual food. In the valley of Jehoshaphat we find many tombs of ancient and modern date. The most ancient among these tombs is that of Absalom, a little temple of pieces of rock, but without an entrance. The second is the tomb of Zacharias, also hewn out of rock, and divided within into two compartments. The third belongs to King Jehoshaphat, and is small and unimportant. One might almost call it a mere block of stone. There are many more tombs cut out of the rock. From this place we reach the Jewish burial ground. The little village of Silla also lies in this valley. It is so humble, and all its houses, which are constructed of stone, are so small, that wandering continually among tombs, the traveller would rather take them to be ruined resting-places of the dead than habitations of the living. Opposite this village lies Mary's well, so called because the Virgin Mary fetched water here every day. The inhabitants of Siloam follow her example to this day. A little farther on is the pool of Siloam, where our Lord healed the man who was born blind. This pool is said to possess the remarkable property that the water disappears and returns several times in the course of twenty-four hours. At the extremity of the valley of Jehoshaphat a small hill rises like a keystone. In this hill are several grottoes, formed either by nature or art, which also once served as sepulchres. They are called the rock graves. At present the greater portion of them are converted into stables, and are in so filthy a state that it is impossible to enter them. I peeped into one or two, and saw nothing but a cavern divided into two parts. At the summit of these rock graves lies the field of blood, bought by the priests for the thirty pieces of silver which Judas cast down in the temple. In the neighborhood of the field of blood rises the hill of Sion. Here, it is said, stood the house of Caliphas, the high priest, whither our Lord was brought a prisoner. A little Armenian church now occupies the supposed site. The tomb of David, also situated on this hill, has been converted into a mosque, in which we are shown the place where the Son of Man ate the last Passover with his disciples. The burial grounds of the Roman Catholics, Armenians, and Greeks surround this hill. The hill of bad counsel, so called because it is said that here the judges determined to crucify Christ, rises in the immediate vicinity of Mount Zion. A few traces of the ruins of Caliphas's house are yet visible. The grotto of Jeremiah lies beyond the gate of Damascus, in front of which we found, near a cistern, an elaborately sculptured sarcophagus, which is used as a water trough. This grotto is larger than any I have yet mentioned. At the entrance stands a great stone, called Jeremiah's Bed, because the prophet is said generally to have slept upon it. 
Two miles farther on we come to the graves of the judges and the kings. We descend an open pit, three or four fathoms deep, forming the courtyard. This pit is a square about seventy feet long and as many wide. On one side of this open space we enter a large hall, its broad portal ornamented with beautiful sculpture, in the form of flowers, fruit, and arabesques. This hall leads to the graves, which run round it, and consist of niches hewn in the rock, just sufficiently large to contain the sarcophagus. Most of these niches were choked up with rubbish, but into some we could still see. They were all exactly alike. These long, narrow, rock-hewn graves reminded me exactly of those I had seen in a vault at Gran, in Hungary. I could almost have supposed the architect at Gran had taken the graves of the Valley of Jehoshaphat for his model. End of section 14